Take your Bibles and turn with me to two texts this morning. One found in the Gospel of Luke, the other in the Gospel of John. First of all, Luke 23. Luke chapter 23, down around verse 33. Luke 23, 33, and then hold your finger there a minute and go over to John chapter 19, and there you will look around verses 26, really 25, and we'll read a few verses there that I want you to hear. I want to talk about the cross this morning, what took place on the cross. You know, as we read this together in a few minutes, you'll notice one thing I think very obvious. And that very obvious thing is that the different gospel writers record different things about the last words of Jesus. Uh, Some skeptics and some critics have said, well, you know, if the Bible is really God's word, if the Bible is really true, then why don't Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John record exactly the same thing in exactly the right order and exactly the, you know, and they all look at it that way. To me, my friend, it, it gives more credence to the fact that this is the word of God, this is the true writings of the apostles, that they don't agree on everything at every time. Let me tell you why. Two weeks ago, the staff and I went to a, a conference down in Orlando, and we sat for three days. Uh, we listened to some outstanding Bible teachers, some outstanding theologians, And each of us, as I looked down the row, I was doing the same thing, were copiously taking notes on each of the writers or each of the speakers. I would imagine, I haven't taken time to do this, I might do it this week, but I would imagine that if I took just one speaker, let's say Steve Lawson, who's preached on the Holy One of God, the the life, the holiness of Jesus, I would guess that if we pull my notes and Todd's notes and Ricky's notes and Scott's notes out of that, and compared those notes that were taken, and the apostles weren't taking notes at these times they were listening to Jesus. They were in great grief at that time. But if we pulled out those notes, I have a feeling that I wrote down everything that I thought Steve Lawson said that was really important, that really gripped me, that I said, I don't want to forget that. But I imagine if you compared mine and Todd's and looked at what Todd wrote down, the things that really gripped him, the things he really thought were important, I have a feeling that you would say, well, wait a minute. Bill didn't write those same things down. And if you looked at Ricky's and Scott's, and even Mark was with us, Mark's notes, and, and looked at all those, you'd say, well, those don't agree. They must not have been listening to the same speaker. They must have been at different places. No, we were sitting there, we were listening to the same speakers, and we were writing down the things that really hit us. Now, who was right? If you were to go back and read the account, the notes of those, that, those messages, uh, who would you say was right? Well, all of us were right. We just saw different angles. We saw different directions in the message, and we jotted down what we thought were important. To a great degree, that's what is taking place in the writing of the Gospels, except they didn't write those from notes they took at the cross. They wrote them sometime after it. Now, tonight in the Truth Project, if you're in it, you're going to hear the remarkable, the unbelievable uh, evidence that supports the Scriptures and the manuscripts that support the Scriptures. I mean, it is absolutely overpowering when you hear that. But but the thing I want you to understand is, as John wrote his gospel, there were certain things that he remembered from that awful day when he stood there and he looked up at the cross and he saw 
Jesus hanging on that cross, the one he had based his life on, the one he had given up everything to follow, and here he was dying. He didn't expect the Messiah to die like this. And what hit him were certain things that Jesus spoke from the cross. Luke, on the other hand, Luke was, had his impressions of what took place on that cross. And, and Mark, probably from what Peter had told him, wrote down what, was, uh, what came from the cross. And, and, and all of these apostles, all of these writers of the Gospels, all had different things that struck them. Now, if this were a conjured up book, if this were something, as some say, that the, the later church kind of said, okay, let's get down and put this together and let's, let's redact it just a bit and let's, let's be sure it says what we want it to say, I'll guarantee you Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John would have said exactly the same thing because they wouldn't have wanted any confusion in 2009. I almost said 2001. Where did that come from? In 2009... They want anything, any, any, they would not have wanted any source of questioning by a church 2,000 years later. But they didn't do that. They took the manuscripts, they took what the apostles had written, and they, they combined them together as the Holy Spirit had led them, and, and they developed for us what we now call the canon or the, the Bible, the New Testament, the New Covenant uh, part of the Bible. Those that were there and who were eyewitnesses to what took place around that cross. Hear what Luke says. In Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 33, Then they came to the place called the skull, or Golgotha. There they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on. Even the rulers were sneering at him and saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him. Coming to him, offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, this is the king of the Jews. Now one of the criminals who were, hang, uh, who were hanged there was hurtling abuse at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, do, not, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we are indeed are, we are indeed are suffering justly, for we, have received, we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Then turning over to John's gospel, John chapter 19 beginning in verse 25. Therefore the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, which is how John refers to himself throughout this gospel, the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, Behold your son. 
And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took him, took her into his own household. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, notice the singular there, he said, I am thirsty. And a jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. And then we'll look at the rest of that on next Sunday. Four sayings there from the cross. Four sayings that tell us a lot about those last hours of Jesus on the cross. Don't ever forget this. When we look at the cross, we have to understand the reality and the truth of the fact that the one who hung on that cross was the divine Son of God. The one who hung on that cross was 100% God and 100% man. He was the God-man who hung there. Now, a lot of people look at these seven sayings of the cross and they, they try to extra extrapolate from them things that are sort of duties of ours. They'll say, oh, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So that means that we are to, you know, forgive other people. Well, now, I think there's great teaching in Scripture that we are to forgive other people. But I don't think that's the essence of what we're talking about here. Others say, well, you know, he, he looks at the cross, at, at the, at the uh, thief on the cross and he talks to him and he, he says to him certain things that shows that we should reach out to other people. Well, I think there, there are certainly things in Scripture that teach us we should reach out to other people, but I don't think that's what he's talking about here primarily. You see, a lot of times we come to passages of Scripture just like this and we try to look at it so that it is about us. But what I want you to see this morning and next Sunday morning above everything else is that what we see on those words of Jesus from the cross tell us multitudes of things about him. They tell us what he's like. They tell us about his character. They tell us about his heart. And they tell us about the purpose for which he came into the world. Now the first thing we see there is just literally the very heart of God in that first passage we read from Luke, especially in verse 34, where he says as he looks at them gambling for his clothing, as he looks at the people sneering at him, these same people for the most part that six days earlier uh, had said, Hosanna, Hosanna! Blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, they had, they had praised him. They had worshipped him. They had been excited. They had seen his miracles. They had heard his teachings. They, they knew that this man was different from anything they had ever seen. And they had heard him say, I am the Holy One of God. I am the Messiah. I am the one whom God has sent. And I have come not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And so they cheered him as he rode in until the tide of popular opinion, opinion led by the religious leaders and the governmental leaders turned against him. And now they're sneering at him. They're jeering at him. They're, they're, they're saying cursings and they're, they're, they're talking about, well, help yourself. Prove you're the son of God. Didn't matter you fed 5,000 on one occasion, 4,000 on another. Didn't matter that you healed blind men who could not see from birth and they could now see it. Didn't matter that you changed water into wine at a, at a wedding feast. It didn't matter that, that on and on and on. The mirror raised Lazarus from the dead. I mean, They'd seen plenty of signs, but now they come and they say, oh, but just give us one more. Bring yourself down from the cross. Save yourself. Oh, well, we know from Scripture that he could have. 
He could have called a legion of angels and they would have come and rescued him. They would have saved him just like Satan had tempted him back in the wilderness. Said, go throw yourself from the pinnacle of the temple and the angels will sweep down and won't even let you bruise your foot. He could have done that. Satan was right. But that wasn't the purpose for which he came. And so Jesus hanging there on the cross, hanging there in a cruel death, perhaps the cross, the most cruel way of punishment, the most cruel way of execution that mankind has ever devised. It makes the electric chair in the gas chamber look like a, an easy death because you literally hung there until you suffocated in your own bodily fluids. A cruel death, an unjust death. Even the, the thief on the cross said, you know, to the other thief, why do you mock? Don't you fear God? We're getting what we deserve. We're getting our justice here. We were criminals. We were horrible people. And, and this man's done nothing. It's an unjust death. He had every right to be bitter. He had every right to be angry. He had every right to say, I'll get you for this. But he didn't. He looked at that mob and he looked at those soldiers, and he looked, no doubt, at the religious leaders that kind of probably kept their distance on the periphery of the crowd, but he looked at them, and he simply said, Father, forgive them. But they don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. They don't realize that they really are participating, unwittingly so, perhaps, in, on one level, but they're participating in the great salvation that God was to bring. They meant it one way, God meant it for another. They intended it to be a, a humiliation. It was humiliating for Jesus to hang there as he hung there. They meant for it to be a, a putting to end this rabble-rousing preacher that had crossed around. And that was all right and just. But they didn't understand. That as Peter would say later on, on Pentecost, when he looked at the crowds gathered there on, on the day of Pentecost, and he said, listen, you know, the one that, was put, that you put to death by evil hands was put to death by the preordained counsel of God. In other words, this was God's plan all along. This was why Jesus came into the world. He had to go to the cross. He had to suffer there as a substitute, as a sacrifice for his people. Father, Forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. I, I don't know how. I know that was an effective prayer. We don't know who, who at that very moment heard that and maybe was touched by God's Spirit and just began to agonize over that. We don't know how many in the days following that in Jerusalem, even as the apostles were hidden and, and others were passing over. Did you hear what he said from the cross? He asked for those who were there to be forgiven, who turned to him trusted him we don't know that we don't know the number down through history who have heard those words even in messages and realize that God's offer of forgiveness is by grace through his son Jesus Christ and by by that grace they've responded in faith to Jesus we don't know the answer to that we can guess it's a multitude a multitude that is uncountable by human minds but this shows above everything else that Jesus is amazingly compassionate and inexplicably gracious in the face of a great horror, in the face of a great sin, in the face of a grace, great injustice. But it also shows us that Jesus recognized that this was a forgiveness that was being granted here 
and was being prayed for, but at a great cost. No cheap grace here, folks. No easy believism here. It's a sacrifice that brought about forgiveness, but it came at a great cost. It came at God's only begotten Son, hanging there in humiliation and in shame before a watching world who did not understand. A great price was paid. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Then there's a second word from Jesus on the cross, and it related to those thieves, those criminals who were hanging there next to him, one on either side. And, and can't you just see this picture? I mean, they can still talk. It's early on in the day. It hadn't got to the point of, abs- I mean, I don't know how it could not be agonizing when the, when the, the nails were driven through the, the, the part of the hand we call the wrist right behind that on both sides and through the feet as they were crossed over and he hung there in, in absolute pain. But they were still not in that point where they were struggling to breathe and they were just having a difficult time to even breathe at all. And they were talking. And one of the thieves begins to mock just like the crowd did. If you're the son of God, save yourself and save us. In other words, get us out of this mess. If you're really that powerful, if you're really that strong, if you've really done everything they've said you've done, then save yourself and take us along for the ride. The other thief on the other side says, do you not even fear God? I mean, do you have no shame at all? You're hanging here and I'm hanging here because we've been caught doing what we've done. There's a great acknowledgement here by the thief on the cross. He says, I'm suffering for what I've done. But this man, this man has done nothing wrong. This man is without blame. This man is without guilt. And yet he hangs here alongside us who are getting what we deserve. Oh, I, I think there's a great, there's a great beauty in what's taking place here in seeing the whole concept of, of salvation. A lot of people had hard to believe that, that there in one moment, in just a, a, a dying hour, that this man said, you know, I believe I'm a sinner, and I believe this one is sinless, and he simply says to him, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Don't you know that both the thieves were shocked when he looked toward the one who was repentant? the one who acknowledged his own sin and the sinfulness of Christ, and he said to him, my dear friend, today, today you'll be with me in paradise. Wow. I guess there's a, there's a twofold truth here. One of them is a danger and one of them is a, a great encouragement. One is it's never too late. You know, this thief could have said, well, Lord, I'd like to believe you. I'd like to trust you. I'd like to think you're sinless and I'm a sinner. But, but you know, I, I've done an awful lot of stuff. You're not going you're, you're to be able to receive me. I, I think purpose, uh, personally that, that this statement of Jesus from the cross is one of the greatest evidences of the great doctrine of justification by faith alone that you'll find anywhere in the Scripture. This thief didn't have time to do any good deeds. This thief didn't have time to say, Lord, I'm going to go out and feed the poor and, and I'm, going to, I'm going to house some people and I'm going, to, I'm going to get together some benevolent committees and we're going to do some good things so you'll love me. And Lord, I'm going to go to church every Sunday so I know you'll love me for that. No, he was dying. 
And in that moment, he put his trust in Jesus. He said, you're, a sin, you're sinless. I'm a sinner. Lord, remember me. You know, we put a lot of stock, as Baptists we have, and I think mistakenly so, in, in what we've called a sinner's prayer. And we've told people, well, that, that'll save you. Just say those words. It won't. But I think here's a pretty good sinner's prayer. Lord, remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. I'm a sinner. You're not. You're the perfect lamb of God. You're the perfect sacrifice. You're the, you're, you're the son of the living God, incarnate in flesh. Remember me. Maybe that's the prayer we ought to teach people to pray. Once they acknowledge their sin, and acknowledge who Christ is, just, Lord, remember me. Well, he did. He gave to him those words, today you will be with me in paradise. Boy, that's brought a lot of questions. What in the world is paradise? Is that heaven? Or is that somewhere you go waiting for heaven to be ushered in when we go to heaven in the last day at the judgment and all believers are seen in? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> but this is what I do know. Wherever it is and whatever it is, that's where Jesus is. And the scripture says he's seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. And so I think Jesus was just using another word for the heavenlies, the, the heavens. He's with the Father, and this thief is with the Son. Now, I said there was a danger here, and there is a danger. And I say this to you today, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, Satan is a real crafty sort. He wants you to believe this to the ultimate. He wants you to, I mean, this is a passage he really wants you to focus in on if you're not a believer and just say, well, you know, you just need to wait till the last thing. Just wait till that last minute. I mean, the thief is obvious good evidence that you can be saved at the very last moment. Even on your dying, he wasn't on his dying bed, he was on his dying cross. But even in that last moment, just wait. Just, just put it off. Just, just don't worry about it. And that's a lie. Scripture makes clear today is the day of salvation. Today is the day you're to believe. Put your trust in Christ. If you sense the Spirit of God calling you, don't grieve Him, don't resist Him, but say, Lord, I place myself upon your mercy and upon your grace. In other words, Lord, remember me. Give me life. Two saints. Very different, but very similar also. Then we go to Luke's gospel, excuse me, John's gospel. We go to John's gospel, and there we find in verse 19, the, the, chapter 19, the whole concept of the cross. And the soldiers did what they did, casting uh, lots for his garments and, and trying to divide them up among themselves. Just to fulfill scripture, remember, that it was prophesied that they divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they did cast lots. That was, that, that was in the Old Testament. Therefore the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus, whether his mother and his mother's sister Mary, wife of Cleopas and Mary Magdalene, when Jesus saw his mother and his disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said, Woman, behold your son. And to the disciple he said, Behold your mother. Jesus' compassion was for the thief hanging beside him, but his compassion also on that cross was for those left behind. I think Jesus teaches us that, that it's not all heavenly-minded, that, that everything, we just get so out of touch with the world and what's around us. 
because he's saying, quite frankly, I'm about to leave physically, bodily. I will no longer be with you. I'm hanging here. So, John, take care of my mother Mary. Mary, I commit you to my disciple John. He is now your son. She is your mother. Now, he had other half-brothers and sisters. We know that. James was one of them. Jude was one of them. But he loved John like a brother. And he said, I'm, I'm making this commitment. I'm, I'm committing her to you, John. You take care of her. The things here on this earth are still important. As long as we live here, there are still relationships that we should, we should strengthen and re- relationships that we should care for and relationships that we ought to use for sharing the gospel. And Jesus was saying to Mary and John, you care for one another. You take care of my mother. Now, again, some might say, well, that that teaches we ought to honor our fathers and mothers. Well, maybe it does. But I think the thing to see here is the heart of Jesus on the cross. The compassion and the love that in the most horrific, most horrible hour that he could ever have experienced or that anyone ever could experience, physically agonizing, his compassion was still things on this earth be watched after that relationships be maintained and they be strengthened and then as he did that he knowing that all things had already been accomplished I mean what a statement after this Jesus knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture he said I'm thirsty. Now, part of that was dehydration as the bodily fluids were, were flowing from his hands and his feet as he had, they'd been pierced by the, blood, uh, by the nails and the blood began to flow from those. And he just simply said, I'm, I'm thirsty. Some would say, well, he was, he was just trying to check off a few things here. You know that... The scripture said he was going to be thirsty on the cross, and so he was just being sure all the things were fulfilled. Folks, I don't think he had in in mind one minute checking off these things. These were happening by the plan of God according to the uh, the prophecies of God. But in, in Psalm 22, David made the statement very clearly. He said this, he said, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue cleaves to my jaws and you lay me in the dust of death. David said a little more eloquently, Jesus just said, I'm thirsty. And they gave him up. Gave him a hyssop sponge, soaked in sour wine, and put it up to him and let him taste of that. The agony is heightening here, folks. The agony on the cross is growing. It's real. This was not a God hanging there who was just acting like he was suffering. It was the God-man truly suffering, truly becoming dehydrated, truly thirsting enormously. It's a genuine thirst. It was a human reaction to the agony. It was was what was natural in that kind of situation. Now, Jesus' thirst has great spiritual implications, there's no doubt. 
He thirsted there so that our thirst might be fulfilled. There's no doubt that that's a spiritual application. Our thirst for God, our thirst for real meaning, our, our thirst for life and life abundant was fulfilled because he was willing to thirst in that moment, in that sacrifice, in that suffering. This was the physical suffering. Next week, we're going to look at the spiritual suffering because there's one great cry from the cross that, that expresses that clearer than anything else. It expresses what the Apostles' Creed means, I think, when it says, and he descended into hell because he took hell on himself as the, the whole weight of sin upon his life he said I thirst the agony heightens the, the, the pain intensifies the, the dehydration grows and he's hanging there unjustly unfairly but righteously righteously because he's accomplishing everything God said must happen he said it through the prophets through his word. I want you to remember something, folks. This is very important. These are not fairy tales. These are not myths. These are not things that just sort of were made up. These were things that were fulfilling the word of God, the law, and the prophets, and the psalmist, when they spoke of this great Messiah that was to come. Things that Jesus couldn't have engineered. Things that Jesus couldn't have just sort of worked out. I mean, let's see if I, I need to die on a cross. Okay, I'll work that out. No. Being fulfilled the very moment. Unjustly, yes. Even Pilate. Even Pilate said, I find no guilt in this man. But yet he sent him off to the cross. His agony was real, both physically, as we'll see next week, spiritually. I like what Horatius Bonar, one of the contemporaries of Charles Spurgeon, had to say in talking about the joy of having our spiritual thirst quenched because of the thirst that he experienced on the cross. He said this, I heard the voice of Jesus say, Behold, I freely give. The living water, thirsty one, stoop down and drink and live. I came to Jesus and I drank of that life-giving stream. My thirst was quenched. My soul revived. And now I live in Him. One of Bonar's hymns, they wrote about the, the power of Christ through His death, through His sacrifice, let us live, give us life, to revive us from death, really to resurrect us from death, that we might walk in him. So the words of Jesus from the cross teach us a lot. They teach us a lot about him. They teach us a lot about his work. They teach us a lot about his character. And ultimately, they teach us that is the only source. That is the only worthy source of our faith and grace and life. The cross is a great invitation. Come to me. Come to me who gave myself, 
that you might have forgiveness, just like the thief. Come to me that you might have protection, just like my son, my brother, and my mother, John and Mary. Come to me that your thirst might be quenched, that you might live. Let's pray together. Lord, as we think of your last hours on the cross, the last hours before you died, you really died. Lord, our hearts are... If there's any life in them at all, they're stirred with gratitude. Stirred with expressions of praise. You did for us what we could not do for ourselves in that death. And your Holy Spirit applies that and opens our eyes. And Lord, I I pray for men and women and young people here this morning that their eyes have never been opened to the glories of the cross. To them, it's just a Sunday school lesson they learned years ago. Lord, it carries such meaning. It carries such power. Lord, help us to see that. Father, we're going to sing in a moment a hymn, By Your Wounds, By His Wounds, We're Healed. We, We heard read the passage from Isaiah that You are pierced for our transgressions. You were pierced. You were killed. Not because of your transgressions, but because of my transgressions. The transgressions of everyone in this room. We had a part in that. Wow. And yet we can hear those words, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they were doing. Father, touch our hearts this Palm Sunday and this Easter week. That we might glory in the death and the burial and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father. Lord, do your work in men and women's lives right now, in young people's lives. Open their eyes and their hearts to see their need for a Savior, Lord. And draw them to yourself Father invade their complacency invade their shells that they've put up and show them Lord that life is in you and you alone thank you Father we pray in Jesus name Amen